Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Kuntavi, a research analyst at the Institute. Pakistan has been hit by its worst floods in recent memory. It's understood that the floods have submerged huge swathes of Pakistan and the death toll has risen to nearly 1,500. It has caused huge displacement of Pakistan citizens and worrying economic losses. To discuss not only the physical impact of the floods, but regional and domestic consequences, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Aisha Siddiqui, Assistant Professor at University of Cambridge. Welcome to South Asia Chat, Dr. Aisha. Thank you for having me. So a lot of media coverage has been highlighting and really emphasizing the devastation of the floods. And more specifically, we've seen Pakistan floods have recorded extraordinary levels of monsoon rains that has been glacial melt in the mountainous north and has affected over 33 million people and as mentioned before, killed over 1,500 people. It has washed away homes, roads, railways, livestock and crops and has damaged estimated around 30 billion US dollars. Though Pakistan has had discussions about climate change and increasingly so in the past few years, was a natural disaster of this magnitude ever expected? What could have Pakistan done to remediate the impact of the floods further? Yes, I think that's a really important question. And to some extent, it's really at the heart of the discussion on this particular hazard-based disaster. Firstly, I think it, it there is something to be said about could any country ever be prepared for this scale and extent of natural hazard? So I think the simple answer to that is it would be quite difficult for any individual state as a singular entity to be wholly prepared for uh, an extreme weather event of this of this intensity. I think the second angle to this about, okay, it wasn't, it was probably not possible for anyone anywhere to be to be prepared for for something this extreme but then what could have been done differently what could have been done better what could have been done so that the hazard which was the extreme uh, rainfall didn't turn into a disaster of this scale on that there are a number of vulnerability related issues so what we always say in disaster studies is that the disaster is always a intersection of the hazard, the actual weather event or a physical phenomena into the social, political, economic, etc. constructed vulnerability. And on that, I've just recently been writing for a number of different platforms. And a lot of what I think is really based on uh, literature and based on um, people who've been been working on these issues actually much longer than I have even. Pakistan really needs to uh, look in and reimagine the way that it manages water. Water in Pakistan currently is very much being looked at through a very uh, river engineering lens. It's very much seen to be some kind of a technical intervention to manage these the, the water system along the river Indus in particular. The emphasis is all on large mega projects on dams, barrages, and very little emphasis has been put into really understanding uh, the local ecologies and the local systems. Uh, there is wide 
understanding now that rivers are living ecological beings. They're not uh, just resources to be used and cultivated for water. And this has completely not been in the domain in Pakistan at all. A lot of the thinking has been really kind of top heavy, imposed from the top. The military sees dams and barrages as, as strategic assets. There is a lot in the thinking around uh, water management in Pakistan that is really no longer supported by the evidence and by the research that we have. So instead of looking at uh, water in this way, a real uh, internal conversation, but it can't just be internal in Pakistan, it has to be a wider dialogue on, on how these barrages, dams, mega projects can be brought in line with uh, local ecologies and river systems, which would be quite difficult to do, and in which case, how can this whole water paradigm be, be reimagined? This is a long-term project and one that requires considerable amount of finances, but it has to be started. The other thing that Pakistan really needs to do and look more carefully at is its whole disaster risk management paradigm, which also not very different to the to the way that water is managed, is also very top heavy. So there is a, a, a disaster risk management act and that act divides uh, DRM responsibilities into three uh, tiers. There's the national tier, the provincial tier and the, and the district level tier. And it doesn't really enable any kind of bottom up learning to take place. So is it at all possible? for community-based participation, community-based DRM approaches, for example, vulnerability and hazard mapping to take place at very local levels for these local committees to be formed, for them to receive the resources and the trainings, etc., to be able to do that. That angle of, of disaster risk management has totally been ignored. And then, of course, beyond these two issues, you have the broader context of the way that development takes place place, the way that urbanization has taken place, riverbeds have been been constructed upon for the sake of profiteering uh, housing schemes and housing societies. So I think all of that, that whole, not just water management, but broader development paradigm needs to be questioned on how can there be more understanding and respect for uh, local land and water systems rather than just uh, thinking about ways in which a particular kind of um, growth or um, economic imperative rules. Um, that's very interesting. I think it's a, such a great insight into the bridge that exists or the gap that exists between civil participation and policy implementation within Pakistan when it comes to this context of floods and disaster management. And I think to kind of, uh, we'll revisit domestic uh, consequences and things like that later in the podcast. But I think another thing about this domestic view is now like, a short-term view, a more international view about it. And the Pakistani government and the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres have blamed global climate change for worsening extreme weather that has caused monsoon on steroids, uh, submerging a third of the country's land. The UN Secretary General also commented that Pakistan needs massive financial support. This is not a matter of generosity, it is a matter of justice. 
Considering this impact of the floods that have had on Pakistan and continues to take place, it's devastating. Is it possible we will see some radical changes in how international and non-governmental non organizations start combating the aftermath of climate change as we've just visited a more domestic view of it? This is more like an international view of it. Um, so I feel like uh, this would be a good point for me to say that um, a lot of what I have been coming across in the way that the media reports about this and the way that people have been writing about this, it seems very um, clear that there are kind of two camps on this. The camp that says that this is all a consequence of greenhouse gas emissions by uh, countries in the global north and uh, this is entirely uh, something that uh, they need to be held accountable for and uh, be held accountable for their actions and uh, the other camp is all about this is the fault of the way that Pakistan has managed its its politics and its internal affairs and, and this is entirely and I think that these kinds of binary views are really damaging I think the reality is always more than a single story there are always multiple stories that intersect to to construct especially something as large scale as this disaster and so I think that highlighting that there were domestic issues uh, reasons things within Pakistan that could have been done better, should be done better and should be looked at for to prevent future devastation of, of this degree, in no way means that or, or highlighting that in no way takes responsibility away from the global north and from countries that have benefited a lot from not just a global uh, greenhouse gas emissions during their, the periods of their industrialization, but also generally from structures of inequality like colonialism, like exploitation of particular peripheral regions of the world to produce greater wealth. And I think that ensuring that the conversation has many nuances and is able to, to draw on all of these different factors as, as a reason for producing the disaster is really important. And the second thing I would say on that is that a study has just been published yesterday by World Weather Attribution that has very uh, clearly uh, shown the science behind how there are fingerprints of climate change uh, all over the particular extreme rainfall that resulted in mass flooding in Pakistan. Uh, in particular, their evidence shows that the five days of extreme rainfall, especially in the regions of uh, southern Pakistan of Sindh and Balochistan would not have been this intense um, had anthropogenic human-induced climate change not played a factor. So I think um, we can kind of put that discussion or that conversation to rest that do we need to keep uh, rehashing was this because of climate change was it not <laughs> We can put that that conversation aside. There is definitely evidence that this rainfall was a lot more extreme because of climate change and that this devastation and destruction that has taken place in Pakistan was very much the effect of that rainfall uh, because of the weather system and the vulnerability of local populations. And where does that and how was that vulnerability constructed? So a lot of the, con the country that is currently underwater or has been underwater over the summer 
is not the urban centers they are it is very much the agricultural kind of heartland of pakistan that is underwater and these are all areas in sindh in in lower punjab in in southern punjab that have been part of very exploitative extractive regimes that were put in place by uh, the british raj during colonial rule very much in cahoots with local elite populations and so there is a whole kind of history of the way in which uh, western intervention both through the climate and through uh, political systems has exposed this population and left them so vulnerable in the face of such hazards and looking at this in a in a more kind of holistic manner that this is not just about uh, ex- just an, an isolated weather event but this whole history there is a very legitimate and a real reason to be having the conversation about uh, reparations for not just climate but the whole history of colonial exploitation which can be part of the discussion through climate reparations that's wonderful i think it's so great that you mentioned also this kind of things don't exist in binary especially when research also shows that pakistan contributes less than 1% of the global greenhouse gases and i guess it's also a very it's i kind of like a pattern or a habit to sort of make it black or white or binary view of this is because of this this has happened and because of this this has happened but when it comes to uh climate change research or even politics uh all of this just exists in such a contextual space so that was really wonderful thank you so much and um i kind of want to come back to uh climate change in the sense of the floods itself so Pakistan's climate minister Sherry Rahman spoke on the crisis and commented Karachi sees an outbreak of dengue as hundreds and thousands of patients are reporting daily at government and private hospitals the dengue cases this year are 50% higher than last year with over 500,000 people in camps throughout the country the health crisis could wreak havoc if it goes unchecked is what she commented the impact of the floods doesn't exist in isolation it doesn't only displace people but rather has a ripple after effect uh, with fa- with factors like dengue culminating into a health crisis as we are seeing how can we assess the impact of floods on pakistan's future what are its long term effects in your opinion highlighting that uh, the flooding is not where things kind of end the flooding really or the disaster doesn't end when the flooding stops in some ways it only begins and then various impacts uh, spur out out of that of course you've highlighted dengue and we have research on other hazard based disasters or other kinds of disasters that suggests for example we have literature on famine that says that people don't actually die or less people die from not being starved of nutrition and more people die from the health implications of of cholera and so forth so uh, absolutely uh, dengue seems like uh, the short term impact because of the stagnant water that's not easily flowing out into into drainage channels because of the way that pakistan manages its water but i think beyond the kind of immediate humanitarian concern of course this has long term implications we know that pakistan was already suffering from 20% or more of inflation 
pollution. And now there is a lot of agricultural lands growing food are, are underwater. So food insecurity and, and food prices rising is a definite uh, kind of concern coming out of this. Pakistan, particularly the province of Sindh, has lost uh, a lot of its livestock in the hundreds of thousands by some estimates. So definitely we know that uh, for those people who get their income from livestock farming, the coming months and indeed years are going to prove quite difficult. We know that for a lot of people who are moving out of their homes and, and are being displaced because of this particular uh, disaster. It, it's going to be quite some time before uh, they feel entirely uh, secure economically and also uh, in a position to be able to start working again, etc. Uh, not to mention the mental health concerns around so many uh, people in the uh, tens of millions being, being affected by this. Uh, infrastructure like schools and, and health clinics have, have been destroyed. So there's really no short-term solution to something like this. Pakistan has to uh, to look at the broader implications of this and put together a roadmap for recovery, which cannot be something that Pakistan does in isolation. It has to be part of broader efforts from including the Western world and other parts of the world. I agree. I think the idea of also sort of putting out a roadmap will really help uh, Pakistan and not only Pakistan, but other nations in South Asia, since South Asia is at a disadvantage when it comes to uh, suffering from the impact of climate change. Um, coming back to climate change, I guess this is a more of a theoretical question. Uh, you know, climate change is a theme that has appeared increasingly in international relations and political science studies. Uh, academics are still discussing the broader impact of climate change on international security, uh, the political implications that it holds. Uh, in the context of Pakistan, how do you foresee the floods being used for domestic political situations? To be more specific, is this something that we'll see politicians using to campaign with? Is this going to be one of the themes that we might see in the short few months of Pakistan's uh, political future? Some of the work that I did on the 2010 floods addressed exactly these kinds of questions about what the political impacts of a large-scale disaster are. And I think that uh, in the very short term, it is important to note that showing some kind of human empathy in the aftermath or during a big crisis, whether hazard-based or, or not, is a really important aspect of of just being uh, being human, and so politicians and uh, and people generally. Let's not even say politicians. People who do that tend to see. Uh, at least in the in the temporary term, some sort of positive outcome as a result of that. And I always, when I'm when I'm teaching my classes, I always uh, compare this uh, to actually even here in the in the UK, prime ministers who have historically kind of put on their uh, welly boots and rolled their sleeves up and gone into floodwaters to show their support to check if people are okay, have immediately seen a boost in numbers versus prime ministers who have gone into um, a particularly catastrophic situation and not met any people, only met the law enforcement agencies and walked out. So uh, definitely uh, showing an, a human aspect, showing that, that you care is important. And actually, it's not always easy, right? Because 
exactly as we've been talking about to wade through muggy waters and uh, be in a, in a situation where you're being attacked by many many mosquitoes when you could be in your air conditioned vehicle inside it's it's a difficult thing to do so i think to some extent it it sh- it shouldn't be seen cynically as just a, something you're doing for campaigning but really that it's coming from a good place or whatever and in pakistan not and or in other places not all uh, politicians do that when i did my field work for my phd in uh, on the 2010 floods uh, in the three districts that i worked uh, the three district um, uh mnas and mpas had very different approaches one of them never went to his district the entire time that pakistan was suffering from floods and another one uh went almost daily and 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 quite regularly and uh in in subsequent elections the the outcome did show that uh the ones who were who were available for their people had had better results and and those who who stayed away didn't but i don't think that there is it, it is it's so cut and dry i'm also so not a political scientist so i don't kind of extrapolate based on 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 numbers and i don't um look at voting data to suggest you know this one has increased in their in their votes and this one has not but um yes i think that uh, if there are uh, politicians who who show compassion and who reach out to people they do well based on the stuff that i've seen but i think one thing on this that i would say is that in the 2010 floods pakistan did something quite extraordinary when it implemented a universal cash transfer program that reached out universally to every single household domiciled in the flood affected regions and uh, this 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 time round it hasn't implemented something quite so comprehensive i think last time there was more money coming in internationally and i think that when the state did that and it implemented this universal cash transfer program it did shift things quite fundamentally where people started to see oh if they're getting relief based on just their identity numbers or based on just on their id card or just because they're a citizen of pakistan they did begin to consider this their right or something that is an entitlement for them so i do say in my research that in 2010 it created quite a shift in the way that um did the, that disaster relief began to be talked about as a rights based discourse only time will tell i mean how uh, this particular disaster will be interpreted and lived um, locally uh, on the ground amongst people yes thank you uh the sort of comparison between the 2010 floods and now and also the issue of time like time will tell with how uh, patterns and data will be established and uh, studies should be conducted so it's really interesting thank you so much and i think to just conclude the whole podcast this is a very general question but how do you see climate change revolutionizing the way we approach development studies or even the idea of humanitarian aid as we've previously spoken about the UN uh, secretary general coming to Pakistan and saying this is a matter of justice so what are your thoughts on this to just wrap it up as i've gotten older i've become less and less optimistic about the idea of revolutions i don't i don't know that anything's going to be revolutionized i think things are just going to muddle along exactly as they are right now i would hope that uh, you know all of the devastation and destruction that has happened in pakistan 
over the summer that happened in um, other parts of the world in South Africa during the floods and landslides in March. I would hope that these kind of disasters and the people at the heart of these disasters who are losing so much that their loss is not in vain, that it makes us stop and re-examine and reconsider and uh, not just people like us who uh, study and research this, but particularly those who are in places of power. But I think it's going to be a slow and painful process. I don't think it's going to be overnight or that it's going to uh, revolutionize anything. I think we're going to have to slowly keep chipping away at this system of inequality. Thank you so much, Dr. Aisha, for your insights. They were brilliant. And I think we've also gotten a holistic summary of like regional, international and domestic angles about the floods that are taking place in Pakistan and the devastating impact it has had. Thank you again for joining us today. You are listening to South Asia Chat. You can get updates on our website, isis.nus.edu.sg or from social media. We are on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram.